So welcome back to the EG Way. We are back here in sunny Ipswich. Actually, it's clouded over a bit now I say that. So it's the first week that it hasn't been super sunny here. But our attitudes are super sunny because we are agile. Martin doesn't like super sunny. Uh, I was thinking of Steve Barmer, who came on stage uh, one time in a big Microsoft conference uh, I was at, and came on and went, hey, I'm super jazzed. And <laughs> yeah. Was he super jazzed about? It was actually, I think, Microsoft Silverlight. You remember that? Yes. So who could get jazzed about Silverlight these days? Uh, old people, I would imagine. So uh, that, there, that isn't. That, there's no double entendre. So can we that. use any of this so far? So far, no. <laughs> <laughs> We are back here uh, talking about Agile, and with us we have uh, our Agile experts. We've got Chris Pont, CEO. Hello. And Ben Rogers, who's Senior Quality Engineer. Hello. Uh, With him is uh, the voice of reason, Alan Jackson, Chief Operating Officer. Hello. And Robin Birkby, Business Analyst. Hello. And also Martin Dumble, Business Development Manager. Hello. And we're back talking about Agile. Now, so... The reason we're doing these now is because we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of the first meetings uh, that led to the publishing of the Agile Manifesto in 2001. And last week we talked about the four big values of Agile, which of course, if you can't remember, um, and I can't, I have them written down, uh, no, which is individuals and interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, Customer collaboration over contract negotiation and responding to change over following a plan. Of course, in 2001, this was a huge diversion from uh, traditional ways of making software. So now we then have been talking about the 12 principles that underpin that. And I I want to kick off with this one um, because it says build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment support they need, and trust them to get the job done. Now, that's uh, an interesting, seems very forward-looking if you go back to 2001 to sort of look at that sort of purpose-driven organization stuff, which is a big trend right now in sort of business coaching and that sort of thing. So were they really way ahead of the game, or has a lot of stuff changed since they published that in 2001? Well, I think it was a reaction because they'd already been doing similar principles in things like manufacturing. You look at things like the Toyota way, they'd been doing them since the 70s, 80s. So I think it was forward thinking for IT at the time, but I think in the in the wider operational space of you know running businesses and, and promoting change within businesses, I don't think it was. Um, and I think to some extent, it's still slightly behind. Um, the ability uh, is getting better with innovation and technology has become a lot more accessible to do that. But I think it was very much a reaction that's helped to bring it on par with other operations. And I think, you know, part of what that um, principle acknowledges is if you start uh, micromanaging people, um, they start thinking for themselves. They, they just start doing what they're told. Um, whereas if you give people the freedom to experiment, um, you know, inspect and adapt, then they're able to come up with new ideas both within the software but also with the process that's building the software. So it's, it's part of what the the agile retrospective um, is all about is is to uh, look at how deliveries happened over the last sprint see if there's any problems or, or anything that worked particularly well 
um, and either um, stop doing the things that cause problems or, or keep doing the things that worked worked well. And I think one of the key points to, to mention about that and going back to the last podcast when we were talking about quality is giving people ownership and being part of that agile process. If they take ownership of things like the quality of what they're delivering, you get a better output at the end because people get pride in their work and they feel like they're actually engaged and part of what it is that they're putting out and creating for the customer yeah i I had this sort of thing about having multiple levels of sign-off with um documents and things like this in the past so if you if you add if you have three people signing off a document and then you add a fourth one it doesn't make the document any better quality at the end what it means is persons two and three will just think nah, someone else they'll get it so no one actually pays any attention and no one actually takes any ownership because even person four would say well should have been picked up by one two and three shouldn't it i'm just here to rubber stamp type of thing so if you take all of that out the way and just say right you're responsible for the quality of this and you put minimal and minimal amounts of gates and and process around it and then you put intelligent motivated people in the mix you you end up with um a better quality deliverable and you end up with better ownership and from a sort of delivery point of view if you then go to people and say i'm not happy with this then they will hold their hands up and say right i will sort it out because that is my responsibility and you say so you have less of these kind of dictatory type conversations where you try and make people do their jobs i think the last thing for me is on this bit this point is I came from a development background as well, then moved into project management and extremely quickly realised that I had very few of the answers to the problems which were coming up. And those answers were to be found in the team with the people who were actually going to solve the problem. So having tried to be too controlling, having messed it up a number of times, I came to firmly believe in this this principle as being the only way. Now, there might be other people out there who do know all the answers and good luck to you. But um, certainly for us, um, that's not the case. So we, we have, it's out of necessity that we have to embrace this this particular um, principle. And I think it also comes down to the, the sort of people that, well, we, we particularly hire, but, but um, all software projects. Um, the people who are working on these problems are problem solvers developers are problem solvers that's what they want to come in and do they want to solve problems so by giving them a problem to solve and giving them the power to be able to solve it however they please as long as it's within these bounds or satisfies these criteria that is the aim is to solve this problem it shouldn't matter how they solve the problem and i think i think we talked about on a previous podcast you know the skills within IT and what that's driving. And I think the adoption of Agile has really changed the skill set within the industry because you don't now get individuals who are purely developers or purely testers, for example. You know, you have people come in who are almost hybrid in terms of, you know, they can test, but they can they can also do a bit of development work or some analysis or project management. I think you know sitting around this table you've got people who have done different roles within that process and i think you know i think agile's got a lot of, a lot to do with that to be honest because it places that requirement on the people involved and it then drives that skill set and drives that enthusiasm for a quality end product and it also drives the people forward it motivates them it, it helps improve their career they they can drive it in the ways that they want to drive it um and having the ability to be able to um have some control over your career and some uh, some control over even just the work you're doing that's what motivates people people like to be able to move forward and feel change 
you actually go back to 2001, this was a radically different world we're talking about, wasn't it? There's there's no broadband, uh, very low um, uh, internet sort of usage in terms of the sort of systems we, we take for granted today with e-commerce and that kind of thing. There was no mobile. There was WAP, wasn't there? There was WAP. And there was possibly WAP commerce. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not sure. I, I didn't do it, so I, I wouldn't know. But I mean, people talked about WAP, um, which is wireless access protocol for those of you who are under the age of 48. Um, it was a very different world. We've got this proliferation of devices, of platforms, of interoperability, and yet they seem to have correctly defined uh, a process that would would stand the test of that massive disruption i think they just understood the type of people that work in this business they they understand developers they understand they obviously worked with when they put this together very sort of capable and motivated people and they understand how those kind of people work so you know it's not to go on about brexit or anything but there is a case for experts you know you do need to listen to experts some people are just more experienced more capable and better at certain areas of the job so that's great but that doesn't mean they get to dominate that doesn't mean they get to dictate and um, that doesn't mean they get to drive their vision over everybody else's and also those, those experts tend to become very thinly spread so you you're going to get used across five six seven eight different projects if you know that much about one particular particular thing i mean mostly because you can't nobody wants to hear about that one particular thing all the time right so you get spread around so the team ultimately has to sort of acknowledge the expertise of that person take their input but then self-organize around implementation and um, that person also has to hear feedback on how their ideas actually affect what the team know because the team will know things that they they don't know as well so i think these the guys that put this together you know the um the they just understood the nature of the people they were talking to when they wrote it. Now, does this then lead us into uh, a quick sort of diversion about DevOps, which I, I know we've already done a podcast on it too, in fact, but there is an interesting idea here, which is um, one of the principles says agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. And I think if we take that previous one about self-organizing teams, and then we we tie that up with this idea of maintaining a pace and having people working uh, across sponsors, developers, users. Were they predicting the DevOps thing uh, some sort of what, 15 years before DevOps was actually a thing? I think they're talking, I mean, it's continuous development. Um, so, you know, with a waterfall project, obviously you, you end up having spikes you end up with a, a very solid deadline that um, that means that you know you've got to work hard to achieve, um, and that's not to say that we don't work hard within an agile team. Um, it, it means that 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 pace is sustained, um, and you're constantly delivering at a sustainable pr- pace. Uh, you're not you're not experiencing those peaks and troughs that you would within a waterfall project. And is that uh, does that have a big implication for the, the, something you said in the last podcast, Ben, about quality has to be built in across the whole process? So the idea that you finish building the system, then you do massive testing uh, process, and then you realise all the things that don't work and have to release loads of fixes for it, uh, going back to the old days of Microsoft Silverlight and <laughs> the, the bad old days of being super jazzed at a conference. And finally... At last, that's actually that's actually the Steve Barmer alarm. That's that's what he does now. Is he's 
you know, he's he's uh, listening out to see if anyone mentions Silverlight. We've we've won uh, some active script, so <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> sorry, was it active? No, what was it? Active X. Who remembers Active X? Yes. We'll be here oh, next year. They're sending it by WAP. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. Active X and WAP. We're, we're back in those days. So, sorry, Ben. So, this idea that we've got continuous attention to technical excellence and good design comes from agility, enhances agility. So, that's one of the principles there. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with sort of building quality in, across the process. Um, is there a challenge, though, in building sort of software engineering quality processes into a team that's more diverse than it ever was before with business analysts and various other sort of people in it? Or um, is that just a silly question? It's a silly question. No, um, <laughs> I think I think the thing is, it's actually in many ways, if you're embracing an agile approach where you've got a collective team which is made of a diverse scope of, of different disciplines in many ways quality becomes easier because you're building in people with those different um, viewpoints with those different approaches and if you can bed in that quality approach as just a sort of systemic culture within an agile team and that ownership as i say as i've mentioned before if that ownership is part of it then it actually becomes easier because everybody is taking responsibility for their part of the process and i think sort of harkening back to, to one of the things that's been said already, there is, you know, Agile had to come, I think, because of the speed of change in technology. We had to have a methodology that could adapt and change as fast as the technology was changing. We mentioned, you know, you said about WAP at the time of, of um, uh, the Agile sort of the manifesto came in. Things have changed so dramatically in the last 20 years as far as technology is concerned. We have to have a process. We have to have a way of adapting to to change um, over time and, and to adapt to the quality pressures that will come of being able to put something out and turn something around very, very quickly in some cases. Now, on that front, I wanted to ask a question about different kinds of agile methodology because one of the things that you hear about are different approaches that's well it's, it's a framework right so you know you'll take parts of a methodology such as scrum but you would apply it to something else as well you know, uh, you know extreme programming or whatever lean so you're gonna trip up there martin <laughs> um, i think martin's on the right track though because it, it is a framework if you if you imagine it like a trellis and then you're growing your I don't know, clematis. <laughs> um, in between it, it <laughs> you, you can do what you what you want to do in amongst that. It's a framework to guide you and to keep you on the right track. Um, but you can do with it what you please and make it suit your particular needs. So it gives you the ceremonies. It gives you the uh, the responsibilities of each of the members of the team. Um, but beyond that and how you apply it to your project, that's up to you and your team and how, what works best for you. So, I mean, Scrum is quite a bare bones sort of implementation. It doesn't actually give you that much in terms of guidance. It gives you the sort of key roles within the team, either the product owner and 
the team. Um, that's pretty much where, it, and the scrum master, of course, I shouldn't forget. Um, and that's kind of where it stops. I mean, everyone has to fit into those three roles. It then gives you these sort of four meetings or five meetings that you do every couple of weeks or every uh, every sprint. Um, doesn't define that particularly. Um, and then gives you a few other bits of guidance. That that's essentially it. They're saying, you know, if you and then t- it recommends you then take those and implement them in a way that suits you. Um, so we, for instance, um, don't follow those four or three roles um, as religiously as, as the textbook would suggest. So we have Robin, for example. Robin is a business analyst, which is nowhere to be seen in the textbook, um, but acts as effectively a proxy to the product owner because there is an acknowledgement in our world that the product owner is an extremely busy person, comes from the client. Um, they have um, a day job generally and they're not always the best person to do the job because the, the, a common mistake is to give you a product owner who has time as opposed to has authority, decision-making power, assertiveness, you know, <laughs> all the other things they might need. Um, so, so Robin bridges that gap and Robin um, takes away some of the, the activities or provides expertise in some of the activities that that person wouldn't necessarily have done before, which are essential to the product owner role and also communicates with the dev team. So we introduce a role, just as an example, sat bang into the middle of, in the middle of Scrum that doesn't exist. Um, but it's for a very good reason, and it's to get the job done. And Scrum, that's not anti-Scrum, that's just working within the, the your environment. Um, you then get other organisations that take it up a notch. People argue that Agile or Scrum doesn't scale. So they say you can't do big stuff in big organisations with Scrum. Seven people... All working on a specific small thing, that's fine. But some people say you can't scale it up. I don't agree with it um, personally. But people then introduce um, other methodologies such as SAFE, which is the sort of scaled up um, agile framework. It introduces a bunch of new roles, lots and lots of other different types of people that work in and around it. And the idea of it is it's uh, supposed to allow you to integrate um, scrum deliveries into, um, or sorry, agile deliveries into um, a large, typical large organization structure that might have lots of end, uh, architects and lots of business sign-off and lots of quality sign-off and long-winded release processes and things like this. It, it tries to provide the touch points into those parts of a large organization which are missing. So some people do that. It's all still agile. It's all still, in its at its essence, got the same intent. Um, how well it, it sort of works is, is up for debate. And I think... Um, it- the idea of the framework is to give you an opportunity. It's, it's the opportunity to touch base with the rest of the team. It's an opportunity to either look back or look forward to figure out whether you're on the you're doing the right thing. Um, the, the daily stand-ups, you could just stand there and say what I did yesterday, what I'm doing today, and what, what might be blocking me. And th- that, as a framework, works really well. But you can do that well, or you could do it badly. You could have people who aren't engaged in that meeting, who aren't making the most of that meeting, who aren't trying to solve the problems in that meeting. And you can have other is where you actually get a lot of insight and can move forward from what you were blocked on yesterday. Um, so the, each of those meetings or ceremonies are all an opportunity to be able to progress with the, with the project. But that's why where, what I mean about you have to make the most of, of what you can with the framework. Now, on that subject, you did say that obviously you have meetings where you look backwards, you look forwards. And it's um, an interesting idea to look forwards and say, OK, fine, so... 20 years from now, I know that's the pace of change is accelerating and what have you, and so that becomes an almost completely meaningless question to ask, but I am going to ask it nevertheless. So, Agile is just coming up to being 20 years old. 
20 years from now, are we still going to be agile? Is it something that's going to stand the test of time, or is it changing? Are there new things coming along? Because, you know, if the best processes emerge from self-organising teams, presumably another 20 years of it, and agile will look slightly different? I think probably the, the key there is that people will be more comfortable with the process. Uh, we still get a lot of clients who are a little nervous that they're not signing off exactly what they're getting for exactly the amount of money that they feel um, is appropriate for that project. So I think you know the, the way that's changing, more and more people will become comfortable with it as a process. More and more people will, will trust the development teams to deliver on those and um, you know, hopefully everything works a bit better. And I think it has already stood the test of time because it's, it's, we're talking about Agile here and the methodologies, but actually Agile's been around for a lot longer bef- or uh, a lot before that because it was in Toyota and I think it was in somewhere else before and wasn't recognised as Agile. So actually it's been around for a lot more years than the 20 years we're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Now, Martin has to leave us now, uh, a little bit before the end. So we're going to say goodbye to Martin Dunbill. Thank you. Business Development Manager. Bye-bye. There you go. Just to show it is live and direct and things happen here. We're not just AIs. Now, before I come to Ben to ask about the future of Agile, this is something I forgot to throw in, which is, of course, a lot of the Agile processes that have evolved, like DevOps and stuff like that, rely on automated testing and automated processing and of course over the next 20 years presumably automation is going to be playing a a much bigger role in software development so as agile moves on do you see yourself being replaced by uh, an intelligent machine well if if i can get a cut of his money then great um i no i think it's a simple answer to that i think there is a lot of i think it's if you talk to sort of anyone anyone looking at machine learning or, or AI, there are some tasks that at the moment AI cannot do and or rather we would rather use people to do it because you know if we're talking about that, are we talking about the risk of developers losing their job because of an AI that's going to write the code for us? The thing is, I mean Robin mentioned previously about problem solving and for developers for QAs that creative talent of looking around a problem discussing it coming up with solutions and from my perspective coming up with ways to break those solutions um, and pick the holes in them in a critical constructive way obviously um, that's something which you need a a human creative mind to come around yes the job will change I'm no doubt about that because you know for me over the last 20 years my job and my jobs have changed as technology develops and and we move into a more um, automated method but that's not to say that we'll be all out of a job i think if you look back to the origins of all this so you go back to manufacturing um so manufacturing has gone through a, a huge amount of automation in terms of build and testing and in various places in the cycle but there is still an extremely important human element mm-hmm. especially in um, anything that becomes vaguely bespoke and what we do is bespoke we're not producing the same car and over and over and over again on a production line and even if we were manufacturing would tell you there's still a big human involvement in setting quality benchmarks monitoring spot checking checking that the robots are configured doing all these kind of things you know you still need people so in a bespoke environment like ours, you're definitely, definitely going to need um, people. I think that 
quite frankly, we're greedy. So if you, or the more you automate, the more people expect to be delivered. That's all that happens. So it just allows you, it doesn't allow, allow you to sort of take people out of the equation. It just allows you to do more, get more bang for your buck. The person's still there. It's just they've got 15 units of code coming out the other end rather than 10 now. Um, that's what the automation side of it gives you. Um, people are still going to, still, especially in quality, I think, especially in quality, going to be needed to, um, to, to judge it because it's a subjective benchmark a lot of the time. And I think largely it'll be the problem that changes. Uh, there, there'll always be problems to solve. There will always be, it might be a different type of problem. It might be that we're, we're creating the uh, neural network machine learning um, techniques rather than websites, but mm. we're still going to need some input, some user input. Yeah, you can get the robot to build the website, right? Yeah. But <laughs> there's still going to be somebody stretching their brain doing that, doing the really hard stuff. Um, and I think that's that's where it will end up. Ben's Ben's job's still safe for, for a long time, Yay. I think. <laughs> Until Skynet takes over. Yeah, and, well. and more to the point, mine as well. So. <laughs> so, so let's say Skynet comes in, and the first thing Skynet says is, right, you know, what we're doing scrums now. That would be radically different, uh, all the Terminators having to get together and, uh, you know, self-organised over how they're going to annihilate us. It's true. I guess at the retrospective, they all say, I'll be back. Ba-boom. Oh, no, we won't use that one. So so to to tie it up, in 20 years, we're still going to be agile. We're still going to be doing agile. Um, I think it's, it's... It's arrogant to suggest that we'd know, right? We don't... We will be... I think... The world of technology will still be moving on, you know, Moore's law and all that kind of thing. It's only accelerating. It's not um, going anywhere. And humans, we're, we're absolutely brilliant at making our own lives more difficult by coming up with new ideas and new problems to solve. So I think that will continue. Um, I think we will continue to develop automated solutions to do menial tasks which don't particularly use make the best use of our brains, but we'll just go on and use that capacity to do something else. And the the methods we'll need to do that, they'll they'll change as well. But... Who knows? If I knew the answer to that question, then, you know, we'd shut all this down, right? Do that instead. <laughs> so we are still going to be agile 20 years from now. I won't be, uh, come to think of it. I'll be um, uh, hopefully automated would be the, the, the wish. Uh, I hope that's, that's my wish, not yours. We could definitely automate you, actually. That's something we could do. We've got a few voice samples now. We could do that. Yeah, okay. Okay. That's Chris, I'm going to deep fake. I just want it known that uh, if this is the last time I'm seen in public, but the podcasts keep coming, please call my wife. All that remains is to say thank you very much to EG CEO Chris Pont. Thank you. To Senior Quality Engineer Ben Rogers. Thank you very much. To Alan Jackson, Chief Operating Officer and Voice of Reason. Thank you. And also to Robin Birkby, Senior Business Analyst. Thank you. Thank you. Do come back for another episode of the EG Way. We're now waving at the camera again. Hey, how's that? Uh, it's deliciously ironic. But there is now footage, I understand. There is. A, there are cameras. There will be some clips going out where you can actually see us doing this to prove that we are real and not AIs yet. Um, and certainly, in fact, frankly, A or I arguably would be a label that's misapplied in my case. Although my name is Andrew, so I will accept if it's Andrew Intelligence, I certainly have that. <laughs> Whatever that is. So, <laughs> on that front, we're going to say bye bye from EG Limited. That's at EG Limited on Twitter. And also find us at EG.com on the web. Thank you for listening to the EG Way. <laughs> <laughs>